Thank you for listening to the Grace Harvest Church podcast. For more information, go to graceharvestchurch.org. Well, it's a great privilege to be able to stand up here today today and share a message that I feel like God put in my heart for you. And uh, I hope you're ready to, to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit as I'm preaching that you'll be tuning in to Him and seeing what He wants to say to you. If you're new here, uh, we've been doing a series now for about five weeks called Seek Him 2024, and it's really about drawing close to God, learning more about prayer, learning more about what it means to seek God and find Him and know Him more intimately, be His friend and be His son, His daughter, let Him be our Father. It's really been a series about getting closer to God. And uh, today I'm going to continue in that series, and my message is called Abiding in Jesus in Our Time. Abiding in Jesus in Our Time. And so before I actually get into the message, I'm going to ask you to do something with me, and that is to pray, right? We're going to right now draw near to God as a group, and I'm going to ask you to pray for me while I pray for you, okay? So let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we hallow your name. We recognize that you are here. God our Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And we worship you and welcome you. You are free to do what you want to do here. As best as we know how, we give you room, we give you a place. And so Lord, come and reveal your face. Show us what you're like. Open up the eyes of our hearts and cause us to see you with those eyes. Open up our ears, dig them out, clean them out, Lord, and cause us to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Give me the ability to speak, to be bold, to be clear, to be accurate, and give us the ability to hear, and then to put feet to our faith and walk out what it is that we hear. Thank you for it, Lord. In the name of your Son, our Savior, our Lord, our treasure, our goal. Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Catherine of Siena was a Dominican nun from the mid-1300s, and she famously walked very, very close to Jesus. All all that she's written, all that she left behind shows us a woman who intimately knew Jesus, and this was before the Reformation. So believe it or not, even before the Reformation in 1517, there were people that knew Jesus and walk close to him. And she said this, she prayed this in the mid-1300s. So let's listen carefully to the echo of a voice from 700 years ago. Listen to what she says. Dear Lord, it seems you are so madly in love with your creatures that you could not live without us. So you created us. And then when we turned away from you, You redeemed us, yet you are God, and so you have no need of us. Your greatness is made no greater by our creation. Your power is made no stronger by our redemption. You have no duty to care for us, no debt to repay us. It is love and love alone which moves you. You know, God loves people. Amen? God loves people. He loves people passionately. God is a relationship. 
I don't just mean that we are to have a relationship with Him. I mean God Himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is a relationship. And before He made anything or anyone, before He created a single star or planet or animal or person, God enjoyed intimate friendship, fellowship, union within the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit enjoyed intimate union. The Scripture says in John 1.1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And that word with is a Greek word pros, which means face to face. And it says, And the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, later in John 14, He has declared Him. So what we see about God is that God the Father and the Son enjoyed eternal face-to-face union and communion. And the Holy Spirit was the result. In a way, many theologians have said the Holy Spirit is like the outshining, the release of the intimacy enjoyed between the Father and the Son. So Father God, Jesus the Son, and Holy Spirit enjoyed intimate communion. And, and so because of that, because God is love and there is love within the Trinity, God creates. Creation is the fruit of intimate relationship. And then what did God do? God made us in His image and likeness, male and female. And out of that intimate union comes children. And so we reflect the character and the nature of the Trinity. And so we see God is a God of love. God is a God of relationship. And not just that, God is a relationship. And because of that, God communicates. God is personal and knowable. Now think about that. He's knowable. God is not merely an idea or a philosophy or a religion. God is a person who made you and desires you. He desires you. He's particularly fond of you. He passionately loves you individually. He knows every hair on your head. He knows every element of your personality and your character, all the things about you that blend to make you uniquely you. He created you. You are His workmanship. You are His masterpiece. You are beautiful in His sight. He gave His own Son for you. He's crazy about you. And He wants you to know Him because He created you to know Him. And to live in and by Him. He's your fuel. C.S. Lewis said that of God. He said that human beings were made to run on the fuel that is God. Where we get ourselves in trouble is when we try to take anything else in His created world and stuff it into a heart that's been made for God. And it then runs on the wrong fuel and eventually that machine conks down, breaks down. See, you were created for intimate relationship and fellowship with the one who loves you more than anyone could ever love you. In fact, every other love we experience, every other taste of love that we experience in life, whether it be in marriage or with children or family or parents, all of it is merely a small little part of God's love. It's an outshining of His character and His person, His nature. It all comes from Him. It all returns to Him. And it's all by Him. And so today, out of that idea, 
of God's passionate love for you, I want to look at Jesus' teaching on what it means to abide in Him, to live in Him. Because in Him we live and we move and we have our being. Amen? He's our all in all. He's our treasure. You know, I've been saying this for a while now, but I really want to just say it again. The quest that you're on in your life, the ultimate desires that you have in the very marrow of your bones, the thing that runs most deeply inside of you, the deepest desires to achieve, to accomplish, to be somebody, to be recognized, to be noticed, all of those, to be loved, to have family, to accomplish something, to make your life count, all of it is ultimately found in Him. You might not realize it, but He's your quest. He's the one you're searching for. And the beauty of knowing Him is that in knowing Him, all the other things that you were created to be and to do unfold and become because you know Him. That's the, basically the message of the Bible. And that's what Jesus came to fix. That's why He came and incarnated Himself, that has wrapped Himself in a body like us and became one of us so He could fix the brokenness. He could bridge the gap. He could once again make a way into fellowship with God. Amen? John 15, 1 through 8. <clears throat> Jesus speaking. This is the, what's known as the upper room discourse. These are what you might call Jesus' last words. John 14, 15, 16, and 17. And, and he leaves the room at one point and begins to walk to the Garden of Gethsemane with his disciples. But that upper room discourse is what Jesus is saying to his disciples just as he's going to the cross. So these are famous last words. These are the things you say that you really want people to remember. This, this is the stuff that really counts. Like, I want you to get this. I want this to stick with you because you don't know it yet. I've been telling you all along I'm about to die on a Roman cross for the sins of the world, your sins included. And I've been telling you this is going to happen. I'm going to be betrayed and it's going to take place. There's going to be a sham trial. It's coming, it's coming. But before I do, here are some things that are really important. I want you to get them. And so chapter 15, verse 1 says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Notice the term true vine. The reason Jesus says this is because in Isaiah, Israel, the nation of Israel, was called the vineyard or the vine of God. And now Jesus is saying all of the promises that were made to Israel find their fulfillment and are brought forth in me. I'm the true vine that has been promised. All that's been prophesied for centuries and millennia is being found and completed in me. I'm the true vine and my father's the vine dresser. You know, he's the one who takes care of the, the vine. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Have any of you been feeling a little pruned lately? <laughs> Have any of you been feeling like some stuff's been being cut out of your life? And you're like, what are you doing to me, God? That's painful. It's also what's going to make you fruitful. Amen. Let's continue. 
Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. The word here, clean, is the word pruned. Okay, so already I've cut you because of what I've been saying to you. So Jesus' words come like the Father's pruning knife, pruning shears, and, and prune us. Verse 4, abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Is that powerful or what? Let's continue to read. We're going to look at the same text of Scripture from the message paraphrase. Okay, the message was an individual paraphrase that a man named Eugene Peterson wrote. A paraphrase is different from a translation because a translation is usually a team of scholars who hold each other accountable as they translate Scripture from Hebrew and Greek. A paraphrase is when an individual who wants to communicate maybe certain idioms in the original languages that are lost in some of the translations, wants to bring them out and make them more conversational, they write a translation. But a translation, excuse me, a paraphrase is not as accurate as a translation. So the message, though it's fun to read devotionally, it's not as accurate as a translation would be. Okay, so now let's look at John 15, 1 through 5, and he says this, Jesus speaking again, same text of Scripture, I am the real vine and my father is the farmer. He cuts off every branch of me that doesn't bear grapes. And every branch that is grape-bearing, he prunes back so it will bear even more. You are already pruned back by the message I have spoken. Live in me. That's what abide in me is. Live in me. Make your home in me just as I do in you. In the same way that a branch can't bear grapes by itself, but only by being joined to the vine, you can't bear fruit unless you are joined with me. Verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. When you're joined with me and I with you, the relation intimate and organic, the harvest is sure to be abundant. Separated, you can't produce a thing. Anyone who separates from me is dead wood, gathered up and thrown on the bonfire. But if you make yourselves at home with me and my words are at home in you, you can be sure that whatever you ask will be listened to and acted upon. This is how my Father shows who He is, when you produce grapes, when you mature as my disciples. Somebody say, mic drop. That's powerful stuff right there. I love that. Now what we're going to do is we're going to look at four ways that we can abide and live in Christ in our time. Is four ways we can abide in Him today. And I'm going to be primarily looking at verses 4 through 8. But first let's, let's define some terms. What's the word abide mean? What's the word abide mean? And it, it means several things, but they all kind of mean the same thing, and that is it means live in, dwell in, remain in, continue in, stand in, or rest in Christ. So when Jesus says abide in me, he's saying, hey, listen, I want you to live in me. 
I want you to dwell in me, remain in me, continue in me, stand in me, rest in me, make your home in me. How do you do that? What's that look like? That's what we're going to look at today. Abiding is all about being intentional to connect with Jesus in an ongoing way through the normal means in Scripture, like prayer, worship, Scripture, Scripture reading, meditation, music, the arts, service, fellowship with other followers of Jesus. When you get around others or where you're in an atmosphere where you're making a connection with God, when you go out someplace in nature and it moves you and and, and the beauty of it takes your breath away. At that moment, if you'll look vertical and remember where it came from and you won't get into the trap of worshiping and serving the creation rather than the Creator, but you'll use the creation as a means to look at the Creator, you'll go, wow, look at what Creator God has done. Look how beautiful His handiworks are. Amen? The Bible exposition commentary says this, This abiding relationship is natural to the branch and the vine, but it must be cultivated in the Christian life. It is not automatic. Abiding in Christ demands worship, meditation on God's Word, prayer, sacrifice, and service. But what a joyful experience it is. Once you've begun to cultivate this deeper communion with Christ, you have no desire to return to the shallow life of the careless Christian. You know, I think I'm done with the shallow life of a careless Christian. How about you? You know, I'm just going to tell you something I said at the end of the last service, but I'll say it right now. Before the service started in the the first service, I was upstairs in a room upstairs, and I was just up there before the service for a few minutes, and I was looking out the window as people arrived, and they're, you know, getting their kids out of their cars and having all the drama that you have when you're trying to get kids to come into church, and... And I was looking at these people, and it was just profound to me. These people are showing up because they want God. They're here because they want God, and they want to learn what it is to walk closer to Him. And it just blew me away, and I felt the Father heart of God. Like, in my own heart, I just was aware. God loves these people so much, and He loves you so much. And He's just the fact that you're here, and... You've gathered with other followers of Jesus so that you can do what? Worship Him, learn about Him, and grow in your faith. That's awesome. Good job. Some of you had a struggle before you came here today, right? And you had a million reasons why not to show up. Aren't you glad you came? Uh, Three of you are. Praise the Lord. Okay, let's continue this. Once you've begun to cultivate this, oh yeah, I already read that. Okay, so what does abiding or living in Christ look like then? What does it look like? I have four things, four ideas I want to get into your mind today. The first one is this. When you abide in Christ, you abide in the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit abides in you. And the Holy Spirit is living water, life-giving presence, amen? When a man or a woman or a child becomes a child of God... This happens by what we call the new birth. And when that happens, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within us. See, some of you maybe have heard about what it means to be born again or the new birth, but this is basically what happens. A human being is not in union with God until the new birth. You're born a natural birth. You're born by flesh and blood. 
you come into the world, but then you have to be born a second time. Something happened in Adam and Eve's fall that has moved through humanity, and there's a number of ways that theologians look at it and try to explain it, but the bottom line is there's some place in that journey when you're very young where there's a, you're not aware or alive unto God, okay? And, and, and you're dead in trespasses and sins, the Scripture says. And so the gospel, the good news that Jesus came and died on a cross for our sin and rose again and... He ascended and He sends His Holy Spirit and that changes us. That gospel comes to you. You can be forgiven. You can be a child of God. You can be in the family. And somebody preaches it or you hear it or you come to church or an individual shares it with you or you're reading the Bible and somewhere in that process, you believe. And the combination of God's choice of you and your choosing of Him, those things seem to work together in this seamless, miraculous thing. And you're born of God. Life comes into you. And that life is God's life. And that life comes into your body. And your body becomes the temple of the Holy Spirit and the dwelling place of God. And the Spirit comes to indwell you and change you. And God's Spirit comes and joins with your spirit. And what was dead inside of you and unaware of God suddenly comes alive. One of the ways you know this happens in people is they, they, just, they, they suddenly see the world differently. They see life differently. They see people differently. They even find that they could read the Bible before and it didn't make any sense to them. And now when they open up the Bible, it comes alive. That's the new birth. And the Spirit comes to indwell you. This Spirit is the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of Jesus. So the very Spirit of Christ himself comes to live in you so that you can live out and become like Christ. But wait, there's more. Hurry up, pick up that phone now and dial. Just kidding. There is more. Because one of the beautiful things that we've come to learn over time is that there's more of the Holy Spirit for every believer. Some people call it the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Some people call it the second blessing. Some people call it being overwhelmed or filled or more than indwelt, overflowed with the Holy Spirit. But what happens is God puts His power upon you so that you can do what He's created and called you to do. And along with that come gifts and empowerment, supernatural graces, so that you can see things, hear things, and do things you could never do in your own natural abilities or power. Suddenly you have divine wisdom. Suddenly you see things and know things and you can pray for sick people and they're healed. Gifts flow out of your life and those gifts give you the ability to do the mission of Jesus so you become the hands and the feet and the expression of Jesus now. Now here's something I want to do to shake you up and wake you up. Some of you believe that's only for the elite Christians, the super spirituals. The really intense people. But the Bible indicates that God has an empowerment for all of His people. And that empowerment is so they can actually live like Jesus and do the works of Jesus. So that two things can happen in their life. They can have the fruit of the Spirit, which is the character of Christ Himself. Or the gifts of the Spirit, which enable us to do the works of Christ Himself. So then we actually become the extension of Jesus Christ on planet earth. Yeah. Anybody want to sign up for some of that? 
That's what God has for all of us. So we abide in the Holy Spirit. We learn that we need Him day by day. We need His infilling. Paul says in, in Ephesians 5.18, don't be drunk with wine, which is wasteful living, but be continually, the word is in the aorist tense, which means ongoing, be continually filled with the Holy Spirit. Continually, over and over again. So God has that for each of us. You know, you can stop right here, right now. You, can, you might feel like, I'm dry, Lord. You could just say, Lord, fill me afresh with your Holy Spirit right now. And the Spirit will come and fill you and give you what you need to do what you're called to do. Okay. I thought it was good. Praise the Lord. Secondly, you abide in the Scriptures. You abide in the Scriptures. What's that mean? God's Word, the Bible, is the most important key to understanding who He is and what He's like. We're called to love His Word and embrace His Word so that we may come to know Him. His Word is the window into His personality and nature. We're to love His Word and immerse ourselves in it. Look at what John 15, 7 says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Did you hear that? If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you can ask whatever you wish and it shall be done for you. When we abide in relationship with God and we let His words live inside of us, our will becomes His will. And then when we ask for things, we ask according to His will and God loves to grant our desires because our desires become His desires. Now this is a really important point here because we live in a time when there's a lot of people that are criticizing this. We live in a time when people believe it's their mission to be critical of the Bible. And let me tell you something, from human eyes, there's a lot in here to be critical of. If you spend any time over the years reading the Bible and you don't understand context and you know, you're, you're, not really, it's not really, you're not really understanding what you're reading, you're going to come across a bunch of stuff that's going to smack you upside the head. You're going to come across things that are going to make you go, whoa, what in the world? Like the first time you read just through the book of Genesis all the way and you see all the flaky weird stuff going on with certain families. And you're like, God's okay with this? What is going on? And all these men marrying multiple wives and all this really bad stuff happening. When you read the Bible, it's going to, it's going to kind of work on you a bit. It's going to mess you up. It's going to cause you to ask questions. It's going to read you. It's going to convict you. But it's also going to, at times, cause you confusion. And because you're a human being, with minute knowledge. The smartest person in this room doesn't even have a dust of the knowledge in the universe and the knowledge of God. And so what's happened is many scholars and others have taken on that they know better than God and that, they can, that they're going to reject portions of Scripture because... Those portions of Scripture are hard to understand, and they mess with you. And I will tell you, there are portions of Scripture that are very hard to understand. I've been reading the Bible for a long time, and I've read through it many, many times. And what I find over and over again is I still come upon stuff where I'm like, I, Lord, we need to talk about this. 
what in the world? But that doesn't mean that at that moment I go, well, it's hard, it's difficult, I don't understand it, so I'm going to reject all of it. Maybe the one that can't see clearly is me. Maybe the one that doesn't understand is me. And why is this important? Because every one of us in this room have to determine what or who is going to be the authority in our life. Who's your authority? Because there are a lot of voices. Like, is science your authority? Because here's the thing. If science is your authority, then you, you're, you're submitting yourself to a moving target. Because the nature of science is that it's always changing because new data is added. Right? So you're like, whoa, you know, this is the way it is. This is the way the universe is. And then new data comes in. Oh, wait, we have to amend that. Right? That's the nature of science. So it's a moving target. It's a changing target. Is it cultural norms? What's happening in pop culture? What polls say from Gallup and Barna and the rest of them? Because of its cultural norms, that's also a moving target. It's going to be changing all the time. Everything we believe about what it means to be human is a moving target. It's going to change continually. And if we make society, social media, influencers, whatever it is, if we make those our authority and the place we ultimately submit, then we're going to find it's changing a lot and it's sinking sand and jello. You can't stand on it. But if it's God's Word, there are going to be some difficult things about it, and it's going to probably take us a lifetime of wrestling with the text. But it's solid and sure, and it's stood for thousands of years, and societies have risen and fallen on it, and it can be counted on. And people who have let their lives and their roots go down deep into it and lived according to it have lived more and more like Christ. Yeah, there are the distorters. The perverters. There are those who do horrific things in the name of Christ. But that's why we need the text because the text shows us that's not like Jesus, what they're doing. That's not like God. Those people are misrepresenting Him. So the question is, who is your authority? Where are you going to draw from? And I'll tell you the scariest one is the autonomy of the individual. Your authority is you. Look, I don't trust myself. I don't trust myself. I could wake up on the wrong side of the bed tomorrow morning and have all kinds of feelings that aren't real. Can I trust myself? I have to submit my, submit my feelings, my thoughts, my ideas, my imagination. I have to submit them somewhere, and I'm telling you something. There's no place like this place to submit them. Now, some would say, I thought Jesus was the ultimate authority. He is. He's the Word made flesh. But here's the thing. You're not going to find who Jesus is outside of here. We have a few extra biblical, that is, um, records of Jesus outside of the Bible. A few extra biblical references of Jesus. But not enough to build on what His character and His nature is like. We don't have that. We just have the reality that He existed, that He was a real person, that He was a historical personage that lived during a certain time. We know that to be true because others wrote about him at the time. But we don't have anything that tells us what he was like except the Bible. So you can trust this book to abide in it. That is, live in it. Settle in it. Put your roots down in it. Yes, let it mess with you. Let it 
put a finger on things in your life. At times you're going to be confused. At times you're going to wrestle. It's okay. Wrestle with it. Just realize God's smarter than you. And maybe even though you don't understand it, there are reasons you don't quite get. And if you give it time and you give it life and you give it experience, it's going to make sense in the long run. It's authoritative. It can be counted on. It took a long time in that, but you get the point. One scripture text, just to illustrate the point. Psalm 1, 1 through 3. Look at this with me. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. That is our time. The counsel of the ungodly, the path of sinners, and the seat of the scornful. Other translations say mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. This isn't judging sinners and scornful in this way and saying, you know, we need to you know, not like people because... No, this is saying, where are you going to get your counsel? Who's going to tell you about life? Who's going to tell you about how to look at the world, how to see, how to feel? Who's going to tell you that? Is it going to be the culture? Is it going to be the scornful? Is it going to be social media influencers? Is it going to be the the news? Is it going to be Fox and CNN? Who's going to be the one that tells you how the world is and how life is? Is it going to be all of those sources or is it going to be the God who spoke and breathed his very words and people moved by the Holy Spirit wrote it down? What's going to be our authority? Number three. Oh man, I gotta move faster. Abide in God's house. God's house is the church. The church is called the body of Christ in the Bible. Not like the body of Christ, but the body of Christ. We are called the different members or parts that make up the body. To rightly dwell or abide in Jesus, we must be part of a local church family so that the life of Jesus our head will flow through the other body parts and give life and strength to us. In the church, we meet Jesus in people. In the church, we observe His character, His gifts, and His qualities in the people around us. When we abide in a church family, we abide in Jesus because Jesus is in His church. This is another thing that's taken a lot of hits in the time that we live. The church. There's a whole group of people out there right now Um, that some have called the nuns. And what the nuns have done is they've left the church and they've decided that I can be a Christian, but I don't need a church. I I don't have to be a part of a church. And you'll even hear people say, I can be a Christian, I can follow Jesus and not be a part of a church. And then I'm like, well, wait a minute. Because that's, you know, I don't believe in man-made institutions. I'm like, wait a minute. You know, I know we had to organize and we have a leadership structure and we had to file with the state and all those kinds of things. I understand that. But the reality is, is that Jesus said this in Matthew 16, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Jesus is building his church. The church is God's idea. When the early church, when... when when God's people, his disciples, went out into the world and started telling everybody about Jesus and people started coming to faith in Christ, they didn't just go, they didn't just go, okay, now go out there on your own, you and Jesus, and here's a scroll, and have a good time with God, because it's just a personal relationship. 
They never said that. The first thing they did was gather others like them and they got together and they prayed together and broke bread together and they worshiped together and they taught each other the world word and then they went out into the community and helped the poor and did ministry to one another and loved the people around them and preached the good news and they organized into local churches. That's why all the letters in the New Testament that Paul wrote, I think all of them, start out except for maybe Titus and and first and second Timothy, maybe first and, no Thessalonians too. So, but Paul starts out to the church in Colossae, to the church in Ephesus, to the church in Corinth, and that word church ecclesia, the ones who are called out to assemble. They're called out from society to assemble into their own community so that they might bring Jesus to the world. You can't separate Jesus. And his church, he died, Acts 20, 28. He shed his own blood to buy the church. The church was purchased with the blood of Christ. You can't serve Jesus one-on-one and not be a part of a church. At least eventually what's going to happen is you're going to shrivel up and die a slow spiritual death and become carnal and the world's going to run you over. You can't do this on your own. Does anybody love me out there? The last one, I'm going to hurry up here. The last one here is abide in relational prayer and worship. I always do this to myself. Abide in relational prayer and worship. I started with this. God is knowable and real. He's a person with a personality, amen? He loves relationship and desires communication because he is a holy trinity. He is three persons in one essence engaging in eternal conversation and deep communication. Because of that, he created us in his image and he yearns for conversation and fellowship with us through the agency of prayer. Have you ever spent time with someone and felt a deep connection? Have you ever, like, you know, you know what I'm talking about. You're hanging out with someone. You begin to talk. Before you know it, you understand something is happening that's deeper than small talk or surface talk. You start to go places. And you feel this aliveness inside of you. That's from God. That inner thing inside of you, that that sense of being alive, that great sense of joy and exhilaration, it's because you've connected beyond the surface. And that's what God put inside of you. When you worship Him, when you pour out your heart in praise, worship, and prayer to Him, He envelops you, He meets with you, and you are abiding in Him. In Matthew 6, 6 through 8, you'll remember this text because Drew preached on it, but this is what Jesus said, when you pray, but when you pray, go into your private room, Shut your door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. When you pray, don't babble like the Gentiles since they imagine they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them because your Father knows the things you need before you ask Him. So look at that. That's relational. When Your Father, think about the wording here. Your Father sees you in secret and will reward you. This is relationship language. Your father, your father who is in secret, your father sees in secret, your father will reward you. God wants to reward you. And what's the reward of time alone with God? First and foremost, you get to know him better. Secondly, 
your requests, which happen in secret, get answered by him out there in the world. And you and God have this beautiful little, hey, we were talking about this last week, and you did it. Is that cool or what? Secondly, you don't have to put on a performance of many words. This is for somebody in this room. God doesn't need to be impressed by all we can say in prayer. Many wrongly assume that we have to say and pray all the right words. But according to this, that's pagan and not relational. And you know, so many times to help people, we come up with methodologies. And not me- methodologies are not wrong or bad unless you, make, unless you give authority to the methodology over Scripture. And we do that all the time. I heard years ago somebody talking about the wonder of praying in tongues. And they talked about how great it is to pray in tongues. And they're like, okay, so this is what you have to do. If you really want to connect in the Spirit with God, you've got to pray in tongues for 30 minutes a day. And they kind of made it a law. And I'm like, chapter and verse. I know your point. Pray in the Spirit. It's a gift. It's a beautiful thing. Do it. But listen, your prayer relationship with God is going to be like a dance. It's going to have all kinds of movements and all kinds of seasons. It's going to be different. God's going to take you on a journey because you're in a relationship. You're not just trying to get God to perform and dance and do what you want Him to do. Come on, somebody. God's not impressed by all of our words. Have you ever had a time when you go to pray and you can't seem to come up with the words and you're not sure what to say and you're, you're there before him and you've read scripture and you're trying your best to pray through your list and it's just not coming and then this voice says, you're a loser, you're a bum, you're a failure, you don't even know how to pray, you're really bad at this, you ought to just quit. Anybody ever heard that voice? That's not God. Maybe what's happening at that moment is God's just like, hey, (laughs) quiet, let's hang out. I'll I'll put some things on your heart. Just sit here with me. Maybe open the Bible. Maybe just sit there. Maybe go look out a window. Just be with me. And if there's something on my heart that I want you to know, I'm going to share it with you. But just be with me. Quiet. All this babbling on, it's not impressing me. Amen, said the preacher. (laughs) And last, your father knows what you need before you ask him. I've had people use this as an argument why we don't need to pray. What's the use of praying? God already knows what I want. Why waste my time praying? No, 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 no. That kind of circular reasoning doesn't work with God. He's telling us to pray. So, so what's going on here then? Well, he still wants you to ask him because it establishes your need for him and his provision. It's relational to ask, so ask. Any of us who've been parents, we know many times what our kids want. Let's say you have a family night, you know, ours used to be Thursday night or Friday night. Friday night, Peggy would make pizza and a lot of times we'd have ice cream and stuff and, you know... They knew it was coming, right? And they were excited about it, or they knew the day was coming. And we could have just done it, but, but you know, and, and everything would have been great. But many times your kids, they ask anyway, are, are we doing pizza tonight, Mom? Dad, did you, get, did you buy the ice cream? And there's something about the ask that establishes connection. 
Right? There's something about the ask that's really important. Does God know what you need? Absolutely. But when you ask, you recognize who it's coming from. You see, he wants us to ask and he wants to partner with him. He loves to hear you seek and ask for everything you need. He wants to give you the joy of connecting your request to his answers. If he provided everything for you without asking, it'd be too easy to not recognize who it came from and not realize that you partnered with him in prayer. See, something happens when we do the ask. We then make the connection. I asked about this specifically, and this happened in answer. God did it. But if we just go about life and we're never asking, first of all, we're not engaging in relationship and letting him know that we need him and love him. And secondly, we won't begin to make the connections. Over time, we'll become dull and we won't make the connection that our ask brought the answer. And so ask him. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Mark Galley, in an article in Christianity Today years ago, wrote this. President Teddy Roosevelt was a charismatic figure who made quite an impression on people. One journalist who lived at that time, William Allen White, wrote about his first meeting with President Roosevelt in 1897. Listen to what he says. He sounded in my heart the first trumpet call of the new time that was to be. I had never known such a man as he, and never, never shall again. He overcame me, and in the hour or two that we spent that day at lunch, he poured into my heart such vision, such ideals, such hopes, such a new attitude toward life and patriotism and the meaning of things as I had never dreamed men had. After that, I was his man. If a mere mortal can have such an effect on another, how much more our Lord? If we spend time with him in prayer and scripture, we too will find our hearts filled with vision, with hopes, with a new attitude toward life and the meaning of things. And afterwards, we too will say with thankfulness, I am his. Amen. Are you His? Are you His? Amen. Let's pray.